gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty, wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. I am Confucius, the Volgi Ecumenicae, and it is my duty and privilege to welcome you to this inaugural edition of Radio Gormagon. I am joined by my co-conspirators, Gortecki, Ghetto Peter, the Tsar of Muscovy, the Inscrutable Mandarin, and Dr. J. We will begin with a segment we'd like to call Meet the Gormagons, and then discuss the evolution of media. Spoiler alert, we're not all that pleased about it. Peter then may or may not drunkenly rant about the odium in which he holds the species Illuripoda melanoleuca. That's Greco-Latin for black and white cat foot, for those of you scoring at home. So, without delay, on to meet the Gormagons. Leading off, ever the soul of humility, the one, the only, the wanted in 34 states, Ghetto Pewter. Volgi, whatever, um, Gort, Gorti, and Pewter decided, that, you know, we're all high school friends, and we just, we had these great email conversations at some point, you know, where we would talk about stuff that occurred to us, um, uh, events of the day. And they were funny. And I eventually said, you know, we should really get together and do a blog. And we did, you know, and it wasn't me because I have no freaking idea on earth how to do anything technical. So I said to call him, he calls himself something different and Volgi or Volgi, often I call himself something different that we should do this. And so it happened and we started writing and and Volgi, 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 at some point said to Zar and Mandy, you know, hey, you know, these guys are great. We should get them into the group too. They write to us all the time. And I said, okay. So we got them in and, you know, it worked out well. Dr. J started writing in Doc into the group and it's, it's all worked out well. And it's been a nice synthesis. And then Twitter happened. And then I don't know what the hell happened to me but it was not good for me in any sort of way, shape, or form. And it, you know, may or may not have been good for the blog. I write less on the blog, but I'm still ranty as hell. So that, that's pretty much yep. how we started. High school friends, a group of friends. Um, although, interestingly, I don't think, well, I've never met in person Dr. J. And I'm not sure we all have ever met everybody else in the group. Or maybe I'm the only one who hasn't, but everybody can speak for themselves. Um, so now I'll introduce myself briefly. You know, I'm Pewter. Everybody knows I live in upstate. Um, I'm married. I got a couple kids. Uh, they're in college. You know, I'm the harmlessly pervy one. I'm fascinated by boobs, as anybody will tell you. Uh, I do the economics and law. Uh, and, you know. I like to talk to people and I like to drink, uh, as you may have noticed from this podcast. So that's me. Let's go to the Volgi, one of the OGs of this group, and he can tell you a little bit about himself insofar as he wants to, including how to pronounce his name. Volgi. It's Volgi. We've been over this a lot since 2009 when the Tsar first shot me with his soft G. I am indeed the ecumenical Volgi, which uh, means I'm nominally in charge and mostly responsible for being fairly behind schedule in the whole world domination business. In my defense, it's hard to get good help these days, except for Gapo, my faithful Yeti servant. 
What does there to tell about me? Well, I'm your ordinary immortal necromancer, and I used to cover the foreign policy beat on the blog. America had a foreign policy. Uh, with sidelines in history, literature, film, art, and vampire killing. And these days, I mostly cover the night shift on Twitter and stare out the window with unrelieved melancholy. All right, over to the third of the OGs, that is the original Gormagons, Gort. Sure. So I'm Gort, or as I self-pronounce, Gorty, which is short for Gore-Techy. So I tend to do the technical side of our blog, making sure it stays up, uh, especially when the czar pokes me and says that it's down. And I do... IT consulting for the federal government. If you followed our blog, I make uh, a number of references in that field and tend to rant about technology, uh, government inefficiencies, and, and general craziness. And I do believe I'm the, I might be the only, well, I'm at least one of the six of us who's actually met in person, everyone. This is the Tsar of Muscovy. Thanks for dialing in. Especially a big hello to those of you in the Bay Area who are listening to us for the first time. Czar of Muscovy is uh, haunted by rage, uh, bitterness, hundreds of years of just generally hating everything, particularly and most recently the media. If every group has a conscience, I am probably the unconscious of the group. And uh, my interests are generally tearing up the incredibly lackluster performance of the media over the last 150 years, both uh, printed and electronic media, and um, other interests that I frequently write about. And, and I may be the most prolific uh, writer on the site, not so much on Twitter, but and definitely never on Facebook, but on the site itself I am. My interests also extend to firearms and outdoor cooking, which if you do it right, are fairly lateral interests. So uh, let's see, I've known the Volgi for a very long time when he and I and the Mandarin uh, worked together for many years and found out that we were largely unemployable. Three of us kind of stuck together and that's how I got pulled in. And in, I think in probably less than two weeks, the inscrutable one got pulled in. So I'm gonna turn this over to the Mandarin. Uh, yes, this is the Mandarin. I'm a first time caller, long time listener. Love you, love the show. Again, I write mostly about culture and things that really irritate me, which is mostly the culture and liberals in general. Again, I've met everybody here on the site in person, luckily. I like uh, the Mandarin, as uh, Zara said, we've known um, each other for a long, long time. We actually went to college together. And um, I enjoy writing for the site when I actually get around to writing for the site. But otherwise, I think it's been a great experience. I'm Dr. J, and um, these guys took me in under their wing after I sent them way too many uh, emails and they said, you know what, post your own stuff on our site. So I said, fine. And I was honored to join them. I've met everybody but Pewter in person. And we're trying to figure out a way to pull that one off. I am a doctor, actually a cardiologist. My areas of interest are healthcare, healthcare policy, pop culture, and there's an education. I'm heavily involved with uh, the local academic medical center and with my, um, my college with regard to admissions. So that's what I got going. All right. So what are we going to do next year? What are we going to talk about? I heard rhubarb was on the, on the list. Yes. Tonight's list topic I volunteer is rhubarb, fun fruit, or edible weed. 
I think rhubarb is really the happiest of all weeds and an edible fruit as well. I also I think that the subject. we can change it to. I would think boobs, but we can't talk about boobs because this is really an aural medium. Um, you know, we I guess we could talk about them, but it's not nearly as fun as looking at them. So let's talk about... You, know, you can do more than look at them. No, I'm Catholic. We can't. So let's talk about something more fun. Let's talk about the media, which a couple people have brought up tonight, you know, and, and the, you know, the recent events about the media, you know, it seems to me that media is caught in of not being able to believe that they cannot be believed by the, you know, the public. It, it's, well, they have to believe us. Well, why? Because our credibility is unassailable. Well, why? You know, well, you've gotten these 58 things wrong in the past, you know, 10 minutes. Why should we believe you? And especially from the conservative point of view, I think. But, you know, I'll, I'll kick that over to Czar and see what Czar wants to say about that. Well, I would quickly add that, and I frequently have brought this up on, on many essays on our site, that uh, this concept that the media is fair and reports both sides and really doesn't have a vested interest one way or another is a relatively recent concept within the media. Um, you know, if you take the longer view and take the thousand yard stare at it, you begin to realize quickly that even less than a hundred years ago, the media was nakedly biased and you bought the newspaper in your town based on how you voted, uh, knowing full well that the, the stories, the columns, the editorials, even the, the, the comics that were printed in there were written slanted toward you. And there was no hiding it. They came right out and told you, you knew right away, which if you bought the the wrong newspaper being new in town. Um, and I want to say it was probably around uh, maybe shortly after the First World War, well into the Second World War, that this concept started that the media was going to be, or were going to be, um, kind of an all-American type thing, that we were going to present both sides equally. And, and that started evolving into this notion that we have to have equal time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have equal time by equally competent speakers. Um, you know, and, and when you speak to people from other generations, they tell you that they really miss the Walter Cronkite days because boy, when he read the news, he, he was so fair and even handed and non-biased, but you know, it, it, it doesn't take a, an anthropologist to pick up on the little microaggressive clues that uh, we hear about today. Um, you know, if, if uh, Cronkite didn't like a story, he would kind of roll his eyes while he was reading it. If uh, it was good news about somebody on the right, he would kind of tisk and... Yeah, but that media never existed, did it? I mean, that, that yeah. media never existed. That, uh, that unbiased media, as much as they like to pretend it, in journalism schools and that whole lot, you know, who say, oh, we're going to have this unbiased picture of the media and we're going to be, you know, you know we're going to be right down the middle. It's never existed. I mean, it's no, it's no more existed than who have been to college or, or in academia. Well, I can tell you, I mean, there's a hard, hard left bias. And this idea of a narrative, there's no such thing as a narrative. There's only such thing as the truth. And, you know, you have to be willing to discard those parts of reality to get to the truth and and when you're focused on a narrative that is a human created thing that you think is right you know when you encounter facts that don't necessarily agree with that you are more than willing to shuck them to the side to to continue to be allowed 
allows you to insinuate yourself into the power structure of America, which really, if you talk about it, is there's, you know, the, the oh, who is it? Eisenhower? Was it Eisenhower talked to the military industrial complex? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but you're talking about really what you have now is a media government complex. And then, and then that's what's going on today. I mean, you've really got a media government complex and they feed each other. And it's not even media government, it's media and liberal, not in the classical sense, liberal in the American sense, government, you know, that's feeding off each other. And it's, it seems like, it seems like Mandy wants to say something. So go ahead, Mandy. Yeah, you know, and what you're getting at too is, you know, it used to be almost like a kind of a gentleman's, you know, agreement, or a kind of nudge, or like here in Chicago, everybody used to joke, you know, how you got a job in the city, because you knew the alderman. It was a gentleman's agreement, every kind of linked and nodded, and it was a big joke. And I think what you're seeing today is, is that that kind of gentleman's agreement's no longer there. I mean, you're seeing the left at college campuses and everywhere else become almost violent because it's been away so long. Now I'm going to get any resistance at all. They don't know how to react to it. And I think that's where you're seeing this violent lashing out. And again, the, the kind of veneer of that, like you said, that whole non-biased media is really just ripped away. And like I said, I think you're seeing from years and years of, you know, everybody being told they're, they're right and they're, you know, everybody else who disagrees with them is wrong and evil. That they really bought into that, and again, there's no, there's no effort anymore, to even like disguise that. And like I said, it's just you're, what you're seeing today is it's un, unabashed, you know, we're right, you're wrong, shut your mouth kind of attitude. I also no, think I agree with each election cycle um, that there's been a little bit of ratcheting up with the media. I mean, there was a very clear dislike of Ronald Reagan, like it was a mild, but it was, you could see it. You know, they're not, they're supposed to be unbiased, but there's a little bias there. I could kind of see the bias. And then, um, you know, when it came time for um, George, uh, George W. Bush's election, you kind of saw some of the kid gloves come off in 2000. And then 2004, it was a, a greater ratcheting up. I mean, to the point where uh, Rather slandered himself with the whole, you know, Microsoft Word document from 1960. They were, they were pretty aggressive you know, towards the right um, in the elections uh, that were they're running against Obama. And then with, with uh, the Trump election, the whole, the whole primary process, it was like, we hate all these guys and we're not even gonna pretend anymore. They're all the lowest, of the low. I mean, it just sort of with each cycle, it's got, we're not even gonna pretend. And maybe it got back to the, um, got back to where it was in the uh, pre 20th century journalism, where, which Bazaar alluded to where it was, you buy the new, the Republican newspaper or the Democrat newspaper, and that's how it is. But, but I mean, it's, it's all, it's all a spare game now. The year is off, but it was a slow boil over the last 20, 30 years. So, so I think though, that this is based on a premise that, that they are journalists and there's some degree where, uh, they do some basic functions towards investigating and researching a story before it publishes. And these days, and I and I would argue that somewhere around 2000 in particular, it has risen to the point where there is no, or there is a, a general lack of journalistic integrity, and it's more of a rush to be the first one to print or publish or put online some piece of quote-unquote news. So we've lost that that idea of reporting and telling a story and providing information, even if it was biased. In, in order to be the first one there, the, the, the whole 24-hour news cycle in concert with the te technological leaps that we've made, you know, the 140-character Twitter bites and 
everything else that we deal with on Facebook. Uh, it just doesn't have a basis um, that's defensible as much. Which I think what you're seeing to some degree is a return to standards such that they were uh, in you know the early days of the Republic. They were talking to up through you know probably again as, as um, the Czar said up. I would I would guess it more like World War Two. I think the creation of the objectivity standard largely comes out of the post-war political consensus in this country, which was basically statist and liberal. I mean, you know, we all praise the greatest generation. However, that was the age of the man, the gray flannel suit, the large corporations, the, the large enterprises, and the large government doing, you know, uh, some good things like winning World War II. Uh, and, but, you know, we forget as, you know, late uh, 20th century, early 21st century conservatives, how marginal our own philosophy was. Um, up until arguably the election of Ronald Reagan, there, there was no such thing as a conservative president uh, in the sense that we understand it probably since the 1920s. Eisenhower was, you know, largely believed to be the consolidator of the New Deal. Um, Nixon was no conservative um, by, by our standards. He was, he was a liberal who annoyed the consensus liberals. He had access to grind. He was not as enthusiastic about certain elements of the uh, welfare state as you know, his predecessor he was a bad guy. But at the time, in the 1950s, 1960s, even into the 70s, uh, there was the sense that all the respectable people were on one side. Therefore, journalism was essentially the first draft of history, the incredibly pretentious phrase that you hear, and that it was a profession, and you went to professional school, and then you see all these proliferations of master's programs in journalism, whereas well up through the Second World War, even in the 50s and 60s, a lot of your reporters were basically guys with high school educations who were you know, reasonably literate and had a way with words and oftentimes were genuinely interested in the world around them. Um, they weren't, as to go back to what Peter was saying, they weren't attempting to further a narrative. They were just interested. They just thought, you know, hmm, city council, I don't trust those bastards. I think I'll go find out what they're doing. If on some level we're returning to that kind of level of interest in the world, uh, as opposed to a sort of blown up semi-priestly caste who delivers to everybody the you know interpretation of the world every morning, um, there's not necessarily uh, the huge downside of the you know collapse of the institutions that we're looking at. What we do risk losing, and it's, it is apparently a big loss, is things like coverage of the world around us, because largely only, you know, big enterprises can do things like have, you know, far as it happens, most of our network news is and close those. Uh, so we are generally operating at, at a, a more ignorant level than we have been before. But um, it's just to say that in general, I think, you know, the moment of objectivity is probably the exception and that we're leaving it, it means that I think we're returning more to our historical norm. But do you think, do you think it's, I guess this is a question for everybody that I'd like to throw because it's, it's really been bothering me that there seems to be sides of the aisle to a greater or lesser extent on, on, on different issues on both sides of the aisle, a refusal to, to reevaluate your priors, as it's said, as the kids say today, but to reevaluate your priors and to say, is there an objective truth? How close am I to the objective truth? Or am I just pushing what I think or feel I can prove by data and by, you know, it, it seems to, it, it seems to run the gamut from 
oh, well, it doesn't okay. matter that Trump's let, lying, let, but people have done it before. Let, let, let me ask you this. Let, let me ask you again and get the idea that there's an objective truth. Look at well, what's that, being taught in universities all across America and the, and the journalism schools that produce these people. You yourself use the term narrative, which is itself a function of um, you know, Marxist cultural thought, saying that, in fact, there is no objective truth. There's merely the dominant narrative, which is determined by the economically dominant class to further their interests. Uh, that is an, it's an interesting concept. They have some validity to it. Um, however, that's the type of stuff that gets bandied around among, you know, pointy-headed folks with college uh, uh, degrees these days. To the degree that you can, that we expect these guys who then go on and get their master's in journalism to think about it because they want to change the world. To somehow no, 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 I didn't, I didn't that ask that question. Empiricism. I, the question I asked was, is there an objective truth? And I agree with you, Volgi, that, that, that that's what the the academia is today and, and i'm not in academia today but it was that way back in the early 90s when i left it um you know at law school level at a very very liberal uh, midwest university but there is there is and must be an objective truth if there's not an objective truth math doesn't work chemistry yeah. doesn't work physics doesn't work none of this computers don't work because it's friggin math I mean, there, there is yeah, but no one is grabbing as a social construct hoax, right? He had he had actually come out and say, "I, I, this is a hoax. You people are ridiculous." So there's a whole section of you know the most educated people. Like, I think it's largely because you educate yourself into stupidity. There's a whole swath of you know the American intellectual or pseudo intellectual or half educated college graduate class who think this is how smart people. Think. Think, that there is no objective truth it's your truth and my truth and, and, and the whole sort of thing and i don't think that we're going to soon escape the consequences of that in you know the reporting of the news or anything else but unfortunately it's also permeated even into uh, you know the scientific scientific departments in academia i mean i'm a recovering scientist and um i had a paper a research paper that i wrote several years ago where it was a negative study I wanted to see if drug A lowered biomarker B. A did not lower biomarker B, and I wrote it up as such. And one of my mentors told me, that will never get published. And I'm like, well, what do you mean it won't get published? He said, well, no one wants to see a, a uh, nobody wants to see a negative study. So what you need to do is you need to rewrite your introduction and you need to re restate your hypothesis such that, and rewrite your conclusion such that You've expected this all along. Now the facts don't change. Drug A still doesn't lower biomarker B, but nevertheless, they wanted the paper to look like, you know, that's what I thought all along. And it was at that point I said, y'all are just ridiculous. And so, you know, I got out of the science business and just stuck to taking care of sick people. I mean, that's where we are in science. Yeah, and and you try having a debate. And, and this is probably a topic for another podcast, but you try having a debate with someone about climate change. And there's a thing out there now, you can go look it up, uh, that they call it a post-normal post science. And like, what's post-normal science? And you go look at their definition and it's where facts are ambiguous. That should scare the crap out of us when you can say that facts are ambiguous, I mean, that is a redefinition of science at its core, which is problematic on so many levels. 
you know, you've gone through a whole generation of kids now that have been taught that it's more important what you feel than what the truth is. The truth is dictated by what you're feeling. So I, I think what you're saying now is, again, why people are like you're lashing out because they can't justify their arguments with how they feel. And when you hurt their feelings by telling them what the actual truth is, you run into situations where, again, people are riding the streets for no reason. Well, the issue, the issue boils down to people aren't used to getting their asses intellectually kicked anymore. Well, and you're not allowed to lay hands on any kid, God forbid. You know, I, I, you know, I deservedly had my ha had hands laid on me as a child. I was an ass. You can ask, you can ask Volgi or you can ask Gort, Gort or Gort, because he's fancy. Uh, you know, but I deserved all the groundings I got. I deserved, and my parents did not lay hands on me that often, but when they did, I certainly deserved it. But God forbid you lay a hand on a kid today. I mean, you, you'll never hear the end of it. I mean, a lot of it comes from authority. Nobody believes in a final authority anymore. There is no ultimate truth to many people, and that's sad. I mean, it, it actually makes me sad. And, you know, it, it's pathetic in a way it, that, that people don't believe in an ultimate truth in something greater or a cause. No, whether you call it God or truth or math or, you know, whatever you want to call it, I don't care what you call it, but there's something greater and bigger and truer than you. And we all recognize it. There is a natural law, regardless of whether it's God driven or not, but there, there is without the ultimate truth. And we're seeing the consequences of not believing in an ultimate truth today. So much of the, what's going wrong today is, as Volgi has said, the spinoff of, you know, since the post-60s and actually, you know, the Pomo, you know, as I call her, Modo, the Pomo Ho, like the sort of Maureen Dowd school of thought from the New York Times where, hey, look, I feel this way, therefore it must be, must be right. No. You know, and I'm a Catholic, and a lot of us on this, on this podcast are Catholic, there's a truth, you know, and the church isn't always in line with the truth, but the church has a long, long history of, you know, of a consistent philosophy, whether I agree with it or not. And I know I don't agree with it on everything, but that doesn't make me right. It makes me, you know, in many cases, a sinner. And it makes me re-examine, as I said before, in the hip terms of today, my priors to say, okay, I'm sort of out of line with this 2,000-year philosophy, not that 2,000-year philosophy that's got it wrong. And there's, there's not enough of people going, there's, people don't know history today. I mean, people have no concept of World War II even, not to mention Vietnam, not to, you know, I mean, not to mention Carter, for Christ's sake. I mean, people don't understand very basic things about the world that happened in their own lifetimes. And it, it's, it's frustrating as hell to have to correct very basic misunderstandings. So I, that, that's sort of my take on a, a Objective, you know, sort of this relativism has ruined reporting, in particularly back to the original topic. You know, the, so, uh, yeah, the the media's issues, though, I think could start a lot closer to home than I I, I certainly hear what Peter's saying, and I agree with it. But uh, I want to tie back to something that Dr. J had mentioned about writing a paper and basically not even getting the topic approved. And what a lot of us forget about when we talk about media bias is the issues, you know, we like to pin it on a particular journalist or a particular reporter or a particular writer, but really the, this involves a whole bunch of people that, that, that happen sequentially. You know, a reporter gets an idea for a story, he or she has to get that approved first. And assuming that gets approved, and of course, if you write a, want to write a nice story about, uh, you know, s somehow a, a charity did better work than the government, 
no, there's there's an uh, associate editor out there that's going to tell that reporter, sorry, you know, nobody's going to be interested in that one, or that would make a great tweet, but not not really necessarily a full blown story. So that is Dr. J experienced. It's tough to even get that approved, and then when you get that approved, you write it up, it goes to another editor, and that editor takes out all the parts that he or she doesn't like or he or she doesn't agree with because that's not interesting to me, therefore it won't be interesting to the reader. And then, you know, that it's the same thing in broadcast journalism too. You've got to work with directors, you've got to work with writers, you've got to work with producers and associate producers, all of whom can take out all the parts of your story that they don't agree with. So you wind up with a nice big, fairly truthful story. Maybe you've, you've even spent some time and got it nicely balanced and talked to a bunch of different sources. Too long, people won't read it, or it's, it's too long to broadcast. We've got to edit it down. So guess which parts get edited out? The ones that they don't agree with. All right. And with that, we're going to end our episode here as we've kind of run our time. Sleestack, hold on a minute, okay? You can clean up in a minute. So Sleestack is trying to clean up after us. Pewter's made a mess with all of his... Uh, cups and various accoutrements. So we're going to wrap up. Hope our listeners will tune in and listen to our next episode as we talk about various things, maybe purple spiders or Ukrainians or pandas, or maybe something more relevant to the news of the day. So tune in frequently and often. We appreciate it. Unemployable. <laughs>